0: Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners, with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence at cmlibrary.org.
1: Welcome to the 2022 edition of Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to the written words. Proud member of the Queen City Podcast Network and the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. In this episode 277, we visit with Robert Conrad, author of John Fisher and Thomas More, Keeping Their Souls While Losing Their Heads. This book examines the lives and deaths of Bishop John Fisher and Lord Chancellor Thomas More, who, quote, died the King's good servant, but God's first, close quote. 16th-century figures who spoke truth to power when, resolutely and cheerfully, they resisted King Henry VIII's demand to swear to an oath against their conscience. The book consists of a series of stories told with a trial lawyer's passion for advocacy and an Irishman's love for a well-told story. Former Attorney General John Ashcraft had this to say about the book, Ambivalence and ambiguity do not inhabit these pages validated historic lives project principles desperately needed by our modern culture of convenience and compromised integrity. Don't read this unless you're prepared, first to be intimidated by the lives of focused virtue and inspired with God's help to imitate them. Before we jump into the uninterrupted interview today, I'd like to thank you for being here. We are grateful for your presence and uh, really appreciate your time Join us here on the podcast. I'm your host, Landis Wade. I'm a recovering trial lawyer turned author turned podcaster of books and stories. And if you run out of things to do one day, you can check me out at uh, landiswade.com. Find out more about uh, me and uh, my writing. Speaking of writing, shameless plug here by the other sponsor of this podcast, which happens to be me. Uh, I have a novel coming out uh, in the spring of 2022. It's called Deadly Declarations. You can find out more about that at com, There's pre-order information there uh, for ebook and print book as well. For everything related to the podcast, check out charlottereaderspodcast.com. We've got show notes on each episode uh, with images and links. We've also got a community blog there. Uh, if you're a writer, you can submit there. We've got a lot of great content. And speaking of great content, we have a podcast newsletter called The Book Report. You can sign up at uh, charlottereaderspodcast.com and stay up with what's going on with the podcast. And... If you're interested in what I'm doing with my writing, you can go to landisway.com and sign up for my author newsletter, where I share information about my writing and upcoming novel, Deadly Declarations. Hey, we won't spam you because, frankly, that takes way too much time. One final part to consider, if you like audiobooks, check out Libro.fm, and if you sign up to get audiobooks from them, use the promo code CharlotteReader, and you might get uh, something extra. But enough of this prologue. Let's get to today's Episode. Bob, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you. Excited to be here. Good to yeah, see congratulations. you. Congratulations.
1: Yeah, yeah. Congratulations on the book. Thank you. Yeah. So ordinarily I'd be showing up in your court. I'd be wearing some kind of suit or something. I'd be calling you judge, but we're we're not that formal on Charlotte's podcast. So if it's okay with you, I'm gonna dispense with the judge part.
0: Normally I would be asking you the questions.
1: <laughs> that's exactly right. You'd be asking me the question. And since you probably wouldn't answer if I yelled across the Little League field where we used to hang <laughs> out, to so Robert, I'm going to call you Bob during this as well. Or Bobby. Or Bobby. That's right. That's what your friends would call you. I mean, I don't even know how your friends know that you wrote a book if you put Robert Conrad on there. You know, you're going to have to – you know, maybe when you write your fiction book, you'll use that pseudonym, you know, Bobby.
0: You know how right. publishers are. They uh, They have a mind of their own, and they refer to you the way they want to.
1: That's right. We'll talk a little bit more about that. Okay. So before we dive into this book, I've got this question. How does someone who is an ACC basketball player turned federal prosecutor, turned and now sitting federal trial judge for the Western District of North Carolina, decide to write a book about two men who lost their heads to King Henry VIII of England, the king who married six wives, as you say, impregnated his second wife before divorcing his first and marrying his third wife the day after executing his second? I mean, what, what... Tell us, tell us why, Bob.
0: So life came full circle uh, for me. I, I grew up uh, playing basketball as a child. My uh, childhood idol was Pistol Pete Maravich. And then as an adult, I came to admire these public figures, John Fisher and Thomas Moore, who spoke truth to power, who followed the courage of their convictions uh, come what may. And I, I wanted to be more like that as an adult. I discovered that Pete Maravich was born on June 22nd. Uh, that what's considered in the Catholic church, the feast day for John Fisher and Thomas Moore. And so my, my whole life came full circle in the, in the people that I admire. And I, uh, I suspected that a lot of people knew something about Thomas Moore and, uh, and almost everybody knew very little about John Fisher. And so I had a, I had a hunger to tell stories about these men that uh, uh, explained why I admired them so much.
1: You mentioned Pistol Pete Maravich. He, when I was a young basketball player attending Davison College as an eight or nine-year-old, he was there <laughs> you know, so at that basketball camp. So really, really fun. Well, OK, so that's a little bit of explanation. We're going to get in more to uh, John Fisher and Thomas Moore because I enjoyed reading this book. I learned a lot that I didn't know about these two men. What did your family and friends think when you told them you were writing a book?
0: Uh, my kids wondered why I was uh, telling more stories about John Fisher and Thomas Moore. They felt like they had heard enough <laughs> already. Um, and uh, fortunately, I, my, my daughter has a lake house, and, and she allowed me to go up there for several extended weekends uh, by myself with my satchel of books and laptop and bang away at some ideas that had been forming in my mind for, uh, for years And uh, actually, the pandemic gave me a little bit more time than I usually have uh, to get that uh, project done.
1: Now, uh, I don't know that uh, many lay people know how this works, but in the federal court system, um, you have a pretty big caseload. So you're afforded the uh, opportunity to have law clerks who are very, very smart law graduates who come in and help you do all the research. You didn't have that for this book, I assume, unless you co-opted some some of your law clerks. You had to do the research yourself, right?
0: Right, exactly. Um, And you know, uh, from your past life, that uh, writing uh, the law is a very disciplined, circumscribed thing. Writing from the heart about people you admire is uh, is it's kind of a, a freedom to express yourself the way you want to, not in the way the last case that controls dictates. And so, um, Bill Buckley was once asked whether he enjoyed writing and his response was, I, I enjoy having written and, uh, <laughs> I very much relate to that now, but I, I can say as well, though, as, as difficult as the writing was at times, it, there, it was a real joy, uh, to be digging into this historical record um, because I wanted to, not because I had to get an order out by Monday.
1: So. Yeah, exactly. We want to talk more about the writing life in a little bit, but let's start first by setting the stage where John Fisher and Thomas Moore lived. Uh, tell us about the time period, what England was like at this time, and then let's sort of set up the issue that led to Fisher's and Moore's death.
0: So the 16th century uh, was wide open. The, the Reformation was first starting and and uh, uh, England at the time looked a little bit like uh, maybe our times with half the country on one side and half the country on the other side and and neither side finding an ability to talk to the other side uh, civilly. And so uh, at that time, there was a, a group of uh, men who were called the the new humanists, and they, uh, uh, they were passionate about learning. Uh, some of the uh, new techniques that were coming into the world at the time included the printing press, and uh, there was a group that formed around uh, Thomas More and, and John Fisher who were promoting the study of Greek uh, at Cambridge and in Oxford and, and uh, an intellectual movement uh, towards recovering uh, some of the uh, things that had been lost over time. At the same time, Henry VIII was coming into power. He had been married for over a decade and, and unsuccessful in producing an heir. And he had, at the beginning of his reign, written a work in defense of the faith where he was actually given the title by the pope as defender of the, of the faith. Uh, but over time uh his uh other interests uh overcame his religious instincts and he began to move in the direction of of uh passionately wanting a male heir. His eyes started to uh wander and uh it fell on this woman named Anne Boleyn, and he was consumed with what he called his great matter, getting out of his marriage to Catherine of Aragon in marrying Anne Boleyn. And it wasn't enough for Henry that that's, as king, that that is what he wanted. He wanted everybody to agree with him that that was the appropriate, illicit thing to do.
1: Uh, Right. And and as you said, at that time, King Henry VIII, uh, I mean, he's defender of the faith. He's supporting the Catholic uh, Church, uh, but the Catholic Church, uh, not so much a supporter of divorce, uh either then or now maybe now it's not as much of an issue as it was then publicly but then publicly that was a big scandal correct
0: it was and 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 the bigger scandal uh that was created by the conflict uh between henry and the church was who had the authority to 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 issue the final word and when that final word wasn't to henry's liking he determined that he had the authority and <laughs> that's what uh prompted these two men to say uh, we've gone this far, but we can't go any farther. We don't support this.
1: Yeah. So, so, so the lust for a woman leads to a split uh, in in the church, and it leads to several people losing their heads. Um, let's talk about these men uh, who were executed and and how they got into this situation. Let's talk about John Fisher and Thomas More. They occupied two different roles. Uh, the former, John Fisher, was a bishop. Then you, uh, you know, he's, he's the cleric. The latter part of the executive branch of government. I believe he's called the Lord Chancellor. Uh, he's the layman. But as you say in your book, both were men of conscience. Let's talk about the similarities and differences between John Fisher and Thomas Moore.
0: So personalities, they were very different. Moore was the gregarious uh, guy that you would want at any Myers Park uh, cocktail party <laughs> oh. <laughs> because okay. he, he was witty and uh, yeah. personable. And, uh, was the guy telling the story, whether to the family, to the the group of lawyers getting together or to the social, but Fisher was locked away in his study, writing sermons and researching and, uh, introverted and, uh, passionate, uh, about, uh, his vocation in life as a first priest, then Bishop, uh, but not a public person. So very different, uh, personalities, The extraordinary thing about both men is in their fields, they rose to the top. I mean, Lord or uh, Thomas More was a lawyer's lawyer and became Lord Chancellor just because of his incredible legal skills that uh, came uh, to be valued by the crown. Uh, He was the number two man in England, best friend of the king. Uh, Fisher, because of his uh, uh, academic excellence. Uh, was the uh, chaplain to Henry VIII's grandmother, uh, named by her to be uh, chancellor uh, and founder of St. John's College at Cambridge. And he was so good as uh, chancellor at at Cambridge that they made him chancellor for life at age 35. So both of these guys uh, rose to the top of their respective fields through talent, through hard work, and through great judgment.
1: So you mentioned earlier that your kids were tired of listening. You talk about these two men. How long have these two men been on your mind, and and how were you introduced to them?
0: So uh, I tried to figure out when I first became aware of Thomas More, and it 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 it, it goes back to my days as a young lawyer, and very uh, impacted by Robert Bolt's play, A Man for All Seasons, which was the Oscar. Uh, movie, uh, back in the, I guess the seventies, right. That, that far back. Um, I first became aware of my interest in John Fisher. Um, when I turned 50, I went with a couple of friends to Stillwater, Minnesota. My wife wanted me to tell people that we went to Las Vegas for my 50th (laughs) birthday. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but Stillwater, Stillwater, Minnesota is the used book capital of the United States, more used books per person than anywhere else in, in the country.
1: <laughs> That's a great little <laughs> bit, of, bit of trivia for Charlotte Rears podcast.
0: There you go. And, um, and there I asked a proprietor of a, a theological bookstore if he would recommend a biography of John Fisher. That's the earliest I can remember my thinking being directed towards the life of John Fisher. That biography was by Michael Macklem and named God have mercy and it's riveting. It's one of the best biographies I've ever read. And so from that point forward, Fisher and Moore uh, are uh, men that I admire. Uh, Fisher is uh, a dedicated uh, priest. Moore is the uh, public servant attorney. And, and i I just thought that over time, I learned more from the study of their lives than pretty much anything else I was doing, and I wanted, at that point, to convey what I had learned about them to others.
1: Yeah, and that's interesting because you know, you, there, as you say, one had has been celebrated um, in film and in plays; the other, as a biography, um, they've been exhaustively researched by, I guess uh, academic historians, uh, and playwrights, what was the spin you were hoping to add to this? That is, or not, maybe spin is not the right word. You were bringing something to it from a personal perspective when I was reading this book. Is that what you're trying to do with the book?
0: So, uh, as a trial lawyer, um, am uh, uh, consumed, uh, with trial advocacy and, uh, as a lawyer, I wanted to be a better advocate. As a judge, I want to uh, promote a persuasion by, by lawyers. And I was taught as a lawyer that when I gave an opening statement, that in giving it, I should stand up, clear my throat, tighten my tie, and then say to myself, once upon a time, and after that, uh, narrate the story to, to the jury. And I found the same thing uh, being a, a grandparent, that when I sat down on the couch with any number of my 10 grandchildren uh, and began a story with Once Upon a Time, that I had, I had my grandchildren's uh, focus. <laughs> and so combining uh, a trial lawyer's passion for advocacy with a grandparent's love of storytelling was the approach to these men that I thought was a little bit different that I could I could tell stories uh having con- been convinced over my career and my my life as a grandfather that a well told story has power to communicate truth and that was the goal of uh each chapter of the book to to tell a story in a way that communicated truth uh as I saw it to the people who might read it
1: yeah, and it came across that way. It's very it's very readable. You, you learn things about uh, these men. You divide it into chapters uh, that are very interesting. Um, and we're going to get a little bit later in the discussion here. I mean, in some respects, this could be a legal thriller because you bring you bring your uh, your trial advocacy skills to sort of talk about the lack of due process. We'll get into some of that. Before we do some of that, uh, we'd like to have a little reading on Charlotte's podcast. So, uh, You picked out a little section to read here, Bob. So anytime you're ready, Uh, I believe this is early in the book, correct?
0: I thought I might uh, read from the introduction that just sets up uh, where we're going to go in the book. And so let me start. The book is written by a Catholic layman, father, grandfather, youth coach, lawyer, former federal prosecutor, and current judge. In the course of his legal career, he deposed a president and vice president of the United States, investigated organized crime and other criminal organizations, sought and imposed the death penalty in heinous murder cases, and presided over trials with millions of dollars at stake. Yet none of these encounters compares to the study of these lives. Fisher and Moore suffered intense persecution and emerged smiling. They laughed at death and now, if they were right, live more splendidly than the King of England. What is the source of their joy? How can their defeat be perceived as the greatest win? Who are these guys? I've spent an adult lifetime marveling at their witness to truth, integrity, courage, and humor. The personal inspiration received from them has resulted in a desire to share their stories. Although intimidated by their intellectual prowess, daunted by their courage, and at times be, bewildered by their humor in the face of adversity of the highest magnitude, I have come away invigorated, even emboldened, in my attempt to live virtuously and to increase in learning. Contemplation of their, of their joy in the midst of adversity has reminded me of the one who said, in this world you will have tribulation, but also promised that he has overcome the world. Moore and Fisher were men of good cheer, overcomers. They rejoiced and were glad to suffer the rebuke, the insults, and the persecution, even unto death of this world. For they knew in the n- in the next their reward would be great. They knew, and because they knew, they stood defiantly, respectfully, ultimately, successfully against all the power of the king. How to live as they lived, how to even want to live as they lived, is what this book is all about. It eschews a chronological narrative in exchange for a series of life stories from which lessons may be absorbed and, God willing, applied. Lessons such as detachment from the things, even good things, of this life, courage to stand your ground, prioritizing the things of God over that of earth and trusting that there is a king greater than the greatest king on earth, and that king loves you. I write purposely about the two together. The the Lord in all ages seems to have sent his friends out two by two. They work quite differently for a common end. The one a lawyer's lawyer, the other a scholar-priest. Their faithful witness, spiritual focus, and secular battle complement each other. Despite their different natures, these friends made even the loneliness of the prison tower palatable. Their united witness speaks powerfully to our world, which struggles with ribaldry and turmoil not unlike that of the 16th century. That century, as ours, was marked by plagues, viruses, social upheaval, fear of collusion, fractious political hearings, warring religious claims, rioting, looting, and destruction of monuments. These friends point us to something better, better here and a better hereafter. Their stories warrant a common tale. As a trial attorney and as a grandfather, I know the power that well-told stories possess to communicate truth. This book is a collection of stories of two men. Moore is indeed a man for all seasons, and his friend John Fisher is a man of faith and all reason. They demonstrate by their lives, and yes, especially by their deaths, that man is made for God, and God is there for man. Here's a sampling of their life stories to guide, to inspire, and to emulate.
1: Thank you for that, Bob. Um, as I'm listening to you read, as I'm thinking about um, where I want to go next with this, I'm, I'm looking at the line, that Thomas More, his famous line, I die the king's good servant and God's first. And to put that in perspective, he was a very loyal subject of King Henry VIII, did a lot of good things for him. Uh, And and Bishop John Fisher wasn't getting in any trouble. He was doing his work and and doing the good work that he did. Uh, And yet the confluence of events comes to the point where, you know, King Henry VIII wants them to concede to his wishes to be divorced. And they assert their, as you said, Truth to power as they understood it, their conscience. They felt like, uh, I believe they felt like if they exceeded his wishes, as the book title suggests, they would be giving up their soul.
0: And so uh, when Moore says those beautiful lines, he is actually coming full circle because uh, six years before his death, when Henry VIII named him Lord Chancellor, he had reservations, and his reservations came out of his understanding that he and saw, he and Henry saw this marriage question differently. And he approached Henry about that, and Henry told him, uh, as my Lord Chancellor, uh, look first to God and after God to me. And on, based upon that understanding, uh, uh, Moore took the assignment as Lord Chancellor. So then when looking to God didn't produce the result that Henry wanted, uh, of course, uh, he changed his demand. And so when, when Moore is saying at execution, I die the king's good servant and God's first, I think he is, he is stating a, a, an approach for public servants in the future to pursue as well. But he is also reminding the king at the point of execution. That, hey, we had this understanding, and I have lived faithfully to my end of it, oh, even uh, here at the uh, execution point.
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, as I'm reading this and I'm thinking about the difference between the 16th century and now, even though there are a lot of similarities, which I found fascinating that you mentioned, the issue to invoke the conscience of these men in the modern day, I mean, divorce is so common. I mean, our former president was divorced how many times? I don't know. But, uh, and it's a hard thing, I would say, to stake someone's life on, right? Right. But am I, am I correct though that uh, that's not the purpose of this book is not to delve into the religiality of divorce or whether that's appropriate or not? It's more about when you have this certain faith, whether you stick to it when times are hard.
0: And so, uh, one of the, uh, people who issued a blurb for the book with Father Paul Scalia, the son of Justice Antonine Scalia. And uh, Father Scalia eulogized his uh, father. And one of the things he said about his father, that his father believed that if he became a better man of faith, he would also at the same time be, be becoming a better citizen, a uh, better judge. And so what I like about Moore's comment is that uh, it's it's not either or it's both uh I die the king's good servant and god's first and so uh I think the 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 lesson for a person of faith is that uh you pursue excellence in both realms and that they don't um, uh, contradict each other you're right i'm I'm not writing a book uh, about whether divorce is appropriate or not i'm I'm writing a, a book about two men who were. Uh, it was demanded of them that they sign an oath against their conscience, uh, and they refused to do it. They were imprisoned for that, and so they were essentially dead to the world, uh, in prison for life, or the, or the wishes of the king, whichever uh, occurred. And and even that was not enough, and so the the king had Parliament pass a law. That made it treason to speak against the king's title. These men were in prison; they weren't, you know, they weren't speaking anywhere, um, and yet uh, the the king had that law applied to them in a in an unscrupulous way, in which uh, which led to their uh, jury conviction for treason for speaking against his his title.
1: Yeah, and I want to talk about that some more. But you mentioned the the word oath, and you've got a chapter in your book entitled oath, a whole chapter, and being a trial judge, me being a lawyer, we've seen many witnesses raise their right hand, put their left hand on the Bible and take that oath, and then we've seen them lie, or at least we perceive them to lie uh, when doing so. You say in your book, words matter, actions matter, truth matters, and we need our yes to be yes and our no to be no. We need Fisher and more. We need Fisher and more. Flesh that out.
0: So yeah, you and I have have uh, have seen uh, witnesses come in and take that oath, which I think is one of the more serious things that anybody ever does. We've actually redesigned a courtroom so that the witness taking the oath is doing it right in front of the jury that is observing uh, both his or her oath taking and subsequent testimony. And our our justice system can't function with people uh treating that oath taking in a trivial way i've i've actually seen a person cross his fingers behind his back
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, and
0: i've heard other witnesses who who are doing the same thing uh, in their testimony? Um, yeah. and we, well, you know,
1: you know, God can see behind their backs. You know that. Right? <laughs> <laughs> now, in your in your new courtroom, you can't because you're going to be sitting up there on the bench, That's and right. be facing facing you. And speaking of that courtroom, I had a chance to tour that recently. It's, it's really uh, interesting having tried a number of cases where the jury is off to my side, kind of looking over my shoulder as I'm doing my work, where, where most juries sit. You've, you've designed this courtroom in the Jeffersonian style where you sit it in the same place at the head, but right in front of you, you're, the jurors backs are to you and they're facing a witness box, which is in the center and the lawyers are kind of off to the side.
0: Yeah, the notion there is that the, the jury is the judge of the facts and the judge is the judge of the law and they share a, a authority and responsibility for a defendant receiving a fair trial. And um, if we are saying that to the jury, we ought to say it architecturally as well. Instead of having them uh, off to the side, eavesdropping on the conversation between the lawyer and the witness in this design, Mm -hmm. they're right in the middle of that conversation uh, and able to observe the witness and judge that person's demeanor and facial expressions uh, in a better way than the the old style.
1: yeah, and if you get a long enough ruler, you could actually tap them on the head if they fall asleep, right?
0: Yeah, they don't know it, but there is a, a camera on the on the, in the back of the courtroom, <laughs> giving me a, a a visual of their facial expressions uh, oh, on a monitor. Okay. So I've, I've I've got a better ability to to see uh, their reaction to the evidence uh, than I did before, but they don't see my reaction. their Their task is to look at the witness and and determine whether that witness is being truthful. My reaction to the testimony is is uh, irrelevant to their task. So this is a much better design uh, for their fact-finding uh, role in the, the trial where they're not affected by any reaction I have as a judge.
1: Well, that's fascinating because you know, having tried cases that every now and then the judge's facial expressions, the jurors looking at it to see, what does the judge think of this? <laughs> so, okay, well, this is a great segue into what I wanted to talk about here, because I mentioned earlier, this could also, this book could also be a bit of a legal thriller, but with a less happy ending than for most protagonists in a legal thriller, because it doesn't turn out well for these two men. So let's talk about that. You've got a chapter called Injustice. They created something called a bill of attainder, uh, which really just sort of gave them the right to take these guys and, Put him in jail. And then they started with interrogations. They didn't have any discovery. The jury was handpicked by the king. Not looking good on the due process side here.
0: They were uh, indicted uh, on a Monday, uh, tried on a Friday, and executed the the next week. Uh, And no right of appeal, no uh, right to have an attorney uh, in a capital proceeding. And then the the most significant uh, injustice. In and the whole show t- trial approach to their execution was a way in which the element of the crime, uh, to speak maliciously or with malice, uh, was just, uh, uh, ignored. And so it was very important to parliament in passing a treason statute to condition a violation of statute on the malicious speaking against the King. And, uh, That's the way the statute read, that's the way it was understood, but when it was applied at their trial, Fisher's defense was that the only reason he said anything about the king's title was that the king had sent his servant to ask him about it, had guaranteed him that um, he was sincerely seeking the bishop's opinion and that nothing the bishop said about his title would be used against him. Well. Under those conditions, Bishop uh, Fisher uh, told the king's servant that the king uh, was not in a good place with his position. And that led to his death. Fisher, or Moore being the brilliant lawyer that he would was, knew that if he maintain, maintained silence, that legally silence implied assent. So that if uh, anybody was to take anything from his silence, it was that he agreed with the king. Uh, that wasn't uh, enough to convict him, so uh the king sent the same servant Richard Rich in to talk to to more and more and rich would testify at his at his trial that Moore himself had spoken against the king's title when in fact he hadn't and that led to the uh, the the very powerful line uh, uh by Moore after rich had perjured himself. Uh, and the court had relied upon that perjury to convict Moore, and Moore said to Rich, I am, uh, I am more sorry for your perjury than for my own peril. Uh, and then he argued to the court, look, I'm in, I'm in jail. I've lost everything because an oath is very serious to me. And I make this oath to the court that if what uh, Richard Rich said is true, then I hope never to see the face of God in my life. Uh, and so he had this comparison of this con- con- conniving, ambitious uh, public servant, Richard Rich, and Thomas Moore, who is in, in jail because an oath is so serious to him. And, and yet the, um, uh, the court concluded that any speaking against the title of the king, regardless of context, is deemed malicious, and so they read the the element of malice right out of the statute and for lawyers, this has yeah. to be a troubling thing
1: well, for lawyers they're working on their notice of appeal, but in in this case uh the the highest court in the land is King Henry the eighth and he's the one who set it in
0: motion right right and so yeah. uh, so these uh these trials uh were unjust. There was a, a third set of uh, defendants uh, executed that summer, some Cartesian monks who were just going about their daily pract- monastic lives and, and, and uh, their allegiance was to the spiritual realm, not the secular realm. And so they suffered execution as well. And all of uh, these uh, groups of people, the monastics, uh, John Fisher and Thomas Moore, were executed for maliciously speaking against the king's title when none of them had done any such thing.
1: Yeah. And ironically, these are the nice little uh, tidbits you include in your book. Uh, The two men were taken to the tower and happened to run into each other on the way under what's referred to as traitor's gate,
0: right? Right. And uh, commented that... uh, uh, things didn't look too good here, but they would, <laughs> they would see each other in the next life. And so they had some informal communications, uh, uh, through the passing of, uh, handwritten notes by various, uh, tower guards. Um, and so, um, yeah, the, 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 the vocational chapter on the book marvels at the fact that these very different persons led very different lives and through the, uh through the uh, coincidences of life and the wrath of a king wound up together at the end, um, uh, both standing for truth, both uh, courageously holding to their convictions, um, even to the point of death.
1: Yeah. And I was intrigued by that part because this would be the cinematic part of the movie where, you know, the person who's going to his death um, is consoling guard you've got a chapter in there where the guard is weeping and he escorts him when he escorts him back to the tower after the death sentence and Moore says to him good good master kingston trouble not yourself but be of good cheer for i will pray for you and, and my good lady your wife that we may meet in heaven together where we shall be merry forever and ever so he truly was uh, convinced you know this is the right thing and things are going to turn out well although as he's looking out the window. At the mucks being drawn and quartered it's not a very happy thought.
0: Uh, but uh, Moore expressed it this way. He, he told his son-in-law that the field is one. And what he meant by that was he had so come to a clear understanding of what was the right thing to do uh, that uh, it no longer mattered what the consequences were. And so Moore uses the term Mary in several different contexts in the latter uh, stages of his life when he's condemned. Um, uh, he, he, he tells the, 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 guard that he will live with him. Mary merrily in heaven. He prays for the King at the point of death and, um, asks for good counsel to be sent to the, to the King. And he tells his family to, to be merry. And it was because, uh, of the integrity of his life. He died, um, uh, a man of convictions, a man committed uh, to truth. Fisher's last days are interesting too. He's woken up on the morning of his execution and the guard tells him he, he has four hours to live. And he thanks the guard and asks him to go that he he was sleeping and he would go back to sleep. And so his life of virtue was so complete that even on the morning of his death, he was able to go back to sleep until they woke him up for his execution. And so how many of us have lived lives that that have been uh, filled with such integrity that at the point of death, there are no regrets? And mm. and these two did.
1: So you went on to include an appendix in, in this book, um, which includes various prayers and scripture on topics like truth, forgiveness, vanity, heaven, etc. Um, were these... Uh, sections that were inspired by, your, by these two men. Uh, anything else you want to say about the appendix before I get to my favorite part, which is the prayer of St. Thomas More?
0: So when I was in law school, I had a law professor that was very uh, influenced uh, by, the, by the community involvement of a man named William Wilberforce, who was the uh, uh, opponent of the slave trade in 19th century England. And Wilberforce, on, on the day of his death, uh, the slate trade, trade was abolished in England. Um, and uh, Wilberforce drew, drew strength from a community of uh, people that uh, lived together in a suburb of uh, London called the Clapham uh, suburb. And so this t- law professor uh, did an experiment where for 30 days in his life, he lived the way Wilberforce's community lived uh when they prayed he prayed when they studied the Bible he studied the Bible and um he wasn't proselytizing the class because he said i don't I don't uh, share the faith of these men but I can tell you that for those thirty days when I did what they did I was more peaceful I was more charitable to my fellow man there, there was a sense of calmness in my life that i uh that I didn't experience before and so that's the uh, the kind of thrust of the appendix is, uh, here are some prayers associated with these men. If if anybody wants to live in some way like they did, um, here are various uh, forms of devotions that you could experiment with.
1: Yeah, and the one that I wish I had when I was a practicing lawyer that I could have stuck to my bulletin board is on page 153. It's Prayer of St. Thomas More, and then underneath that in italics, for lawyers. (laughs) So would you mind uh, reading that for us, Bob?
0: Sure. Lord, grant that I may be able in argument, accurate in analysis, strict in study, candid with clients, and honest with adversaries. Sit with me at my desk and listen with me to my clients' complaints. Read with me in my library and stand beside me in court, so that today I shall not, in order to win a point, lose my soul. Amen.
1: Amen. And how many times, Bob, we've been in court and you're so much in the moment that you're doing all you can to win a point. You go, wait a minute, draw back here a little bit. (laughs) You know, you're, you're getting ahead of yourself here. You know, you're remember what the facts are, remember what the law is. Right. And so this is just, it's a great, it's a great reminder. Uh, all right, well look, a couple of, uh, writing life questions. We talked about the fact that, uh, this was different than the kind of writing you did before. Um, what did you think it would be? And, uh, what were some of the challenges for you
0: so um there are a couple of interesting aspects to the approach. I was writing about two men, not one, and I thought that their very different vocations leading to the identical uh, spot was an interesting way to look at them that had not been uh done be before, and so um very different personalities, very different uh, sources for research, Um, uh, but then I was really uh, satisfied by the similarities um, that uh, uh, their approach included being confronted with an issue, studying it uh, in detail, coming to an informed conscience and then acting consistently with that informed conscience, Um, expressed very differently by the two, but the same kind of approach, which um, I think is a model uh, for me and perhaps uh, for others. The other thing I was surprised by in in the writing process was how much, so much of the book was already in my head. And when I actually sat down to write, it wasn't as difficult, uh, as, uh, I thought it might be a really a neat third aspect of it is I sent the manuscript to a, uh, uh, Moore scholar, a guy named Gerald, uh, Wegemer who Gerard Wegemer, who is the director of the Thomas Moore center at the university of Dallas. I just wanted him to check my facts. And he came back to me saying, you need a chapter in this book on friendship. And, uh, and he was right. I did. And when I sat down to write the, the chapter on friendship, I, it's one of the better chapters in the book, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, Moore is described by his friend Erasmus as a man born and made for friendship. And uh, he truly was. And his ability to connect with others um, uh, is something I'm glad I had an opportunity to write on.
1: Is this uh, an experience, Bob? That having gone through it, you'd uh, want to repeat. You got another another book in you, think? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I I hope I do. Uh, I've enjoyed the 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 process, and and I have some different ideas. One of the ideas again connects to my uh, my childhood, my sports background. I don't know if you grew up reading Chip Hilton sports books. Is that a is that a series familiar to you?
1: No, uh, it's not. But I've I've re- I read a lot of sports books growing up.
0: So uh, uh, very much like the Hardy Boys, uh, right, right. Uh, Claire B was uh, a Hall of Fame basketball coach at Long Island, and one of the things he did in his spare time was to to write a uh, sports series around a figure Chip Hilton, who was the the high school and college athlete that made the winning free throws, hit the game winning home mm-hmm. run, and. And uh, even in the fifties, was racially sensitive to his teammates and supported his widowed mother. And and uh, there's a lawyer friend of yours named John Buchan who says mm-hmm. that he his moral formation was formed by reading the Chip Hilton Sports Series. And
1: uh, That's great. <laughs> well, I, when I, I was an undersized. Uh, football player so my dad gave me a book i don't remember the author it was called run shorty run <laughs> <laughs> it was, work? well it helped yeah <laughs> it helped um well look we could we could continue to, to to talk all day about this i've been talking uh with uh judge robert uh, J. conrad jr that's what it says on the front of the book here um with a forward by hadley Arks. it's uh john fisher and thomas moore keeping their souls while losing their heads you can find out more about this at uh uh, our website, com. We've got uh, show notes there with uh, images, links, uh, book cover. Uh, find out about it. Uh, go check it out. There's a lot of interesting stuff here. Uh, Bob, I want to thank you for spending time with us today on Charlotte Riz Podcast.
0: Thank you for being a recovering trial lawyer.
1: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I'm still in the recovery process, as you can see. <laughs> well, that's it for today another fine author giving voice to the written words. You can subscribe to this podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and most any podcast platform you like to listen to your podcast on.
0: If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice, because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land.
1: And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member
0: supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Thank you for listening. We
1: really appreciate it. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast.
0: Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Powered by Ortho
1: Carolina. For more information, go to Queen dot com.